Missouri, United States versus Stacy Lyman. All right, Mr. O'Connor, the court appreciates your willingness to accept the appointment under the Criminal Justice Act in this case, and you may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the court and counsel. Um, first off, thanks so much for sitting with us. I know it's been a long week for you guys. We're at the very tail end now, so it's almost over. Uh, you know, the, the case in front of you, uh, Mr. Lyman's, seems like it's broken up into two relatively concrete areas. One is the merits of what we've raised on appeal, and the second is the procedure and whether or not this court can really address the merits of the issue itself. The merits, to me, seem relatively straightforward. I know that the government put in its motion that they found it to be somewhat uh, confusing. I disagree with that characterization. It seems abundantly clear that the underlying offenses that were used as predicates to make Mr. Lyman be an armed career criminal were based on old law. Old law that was no longer right any longer in Missouri. And it seemed as if that there was uh, a, a failing, perhaps, on the prosecutor's office to change the charging information to make it consistent and accurate with the updated nature of Missouri law. Uh, I don't think that that part is too incredibly difficult. Uh, well, why does that show that the offenses do not qualify under 924? Under the so, definition of serious drug offense. Right. Uh, I think the, the argument that I made in the alternative about whether or not they, they qualify or not, I think is foreclosed at this point by Shuler. And I know that the government put that in their brief. I think where we stand now procedurally is simply a question of whether or not you can use faulty convictions as enhancements or as predicates for an ACCA. It's so to answer your question, I'm not trying to skirt it. So if I'm not answering it correctly, just let me know. What I'm saying is, if he's convicted under old law that has been updated in the state of Missouri, that conviction in and of itself is an illegal conviction. Does I that make sense? Well, that sounds like a collateral attack on the conviction, though. So how do you get around the Custis case? Yeah, there's a... <laughs> I think, truthfully, the, the procedural ramifications of this case are tricky. <laughs> Honestly, there's a lot of procedural chasms that Mr. Lyman's going to have to walk through in order to get relief. Uh, I would stand with what I said in the brief, which is, first, I don't view it as much as a collateral attack. I am aware of the case law that essentially says that the only way that we can get relief is if he does not have a lawyer. He had a lawyer. What I'm saying is we do this all the time. We analyze predicate offenses in ACCA cases all the time. And the animating principle that Custis discusses when it announces this rule is the fact that these could get into really lengthy, complicated inquiries that the appellate courts don't wish the district courts to have to engage in. That makes sense. I mean, I think that that rule makes a tremendous amount of sense. It's logical and it's applicable. The distinction here is this. This isn't that different of a circumstance that what we are seeking to accomplish here isn't all that challenging. He was convicted in 1997 using law and language from prior to 1993. So he's convicted four years after the law has changed under what I consider to be an illegal conviction. So does that make sense? Is that... 
Well, are you saying that you want this court to rule that the prior convictions are invalid? Yes. And you're saying that Custis does not preclude that because Custis was concerned about complex uh, litigation that wouldn't be required here? Is that the idea? That's exactly right. Custis creates a bias. Well, that might and the reason for the one of the motivating factors for the rule in Custis, but I wonder whether it's a reason why we can allow an exception. That would be my remaining question, but I don't want to take up all your time. No, um, I, I understand where you're coming from. And if I were in the court shoes reading this, I think what I would see is a lot of procedural barriers to granting relief for Mr. Lyman. But this is a unique situation. Um, I don't think often uh, this court's desk is going to have a case come across it like this. Because fundamentally, the idea is a person shouldn't spend a day in jail for something that they didn't do or something that is not criminal. So if he was convicted of something that was no longer criminal when he was convicted of it, to me, this is a special circumstance. You can just look at this and say, well, that's an invalid conviction. And it's not against the spirit of Custis. It's not a collateral attack. We're simply saying it doesn't qualify as an ACCA predicate because these are invalid convictions. It didn't right. take... Does that make sense? Do we have uh, a document? I think Judge Moy has a question, but just real quick. It's kind of a yes or no. Do we have a document that shows what happened at the plea hearing for these state convictions? I know we have the charging documents, but do we know whether he admitted knowledge at the plea hearings one way or the other? We. It's my... Uh, memory that we don't know that. All right. I think Judge Malloy has a question. Well, my, my question was very similar. Is, is How do we know that he was charged and convicted under an old statute? If we don't have the plea colloquy, um, how, how, do, how do we know that? Even assume, Assuming we can even get to that issue. Assuming we can get to that issue, I don't think that we know that. Mr. Hurst can correct me on this, but what we can look at... Well, if we don't know that, if we don't know that, then how can we get to that issue? Yeah, certainly. And I, I apologize for not knowing the uh, line of cases, but it's it's in the recesses of my mind, I suppose. But as I recall, when we're looking at ACCA predicates, I believe that there is language that talks about that the information or the indictment is sufficient. And in this case, we do have the information. It is in front of us. It has been filed with this case. It is in front of this court. And the information very clearly uses reckless mens rea guidelines in its charging document. Um, to respond to the plea colloquy, I don't know. I don't have that answer. But what I can say is, and I'm fairly certain that there is a line of cases in progeny that discuss this, that if we are limited or we limit our inquiry to the charging documentation, that is sufficient for the court to act upon. So well, I think you're referring to the Shepard line of cases, which says that the court can rely on the charging document when we're trying to figure out whether a person was convicted of offense A or B in, say, a statute that's divisible. The issue here is a little different, I think, because the charging document charges two alternative mens rea, and you're saying that one of them is insufficient under state law, but we don't even know whether the judge, in taking the plea, uh, straightened it out. 
right. required the knowledge mens rea. So I guess you've already said you don't know. I'm just, uh, I think, questioning whether the Shepard case is really help here. Yeah, and, and thinking about it off the top of my head, I, I know that it's not exactly on point, and I can't imagine this is something that probably comes, like I said before, this court with amount of frequency. Um, if the court would deem relief would be appropriate to go back down and look at this from an evidentiary perspective, we'd be happy to do that. I, I recognize this is a unique situation, and I think that Mr. Lyman does too. We're simply standing for the proposition that someone shouldn't go to jail for longer on something that is clearly non-compliant with Missouri law. So I think I, uh, no one had any additional questions. I'd like to reserve the remaining amount of my time. Very well, you may. Thank you for your argument. Mr. Hurst, we'll hear from you. May it please the court, Ben Hurst for the United States. Uh, the district court sentence here was not plainly erroneous. Um, but this is not a question the court even needs to reach. Considering the discussion, I'm going to go ahead and start with the merits, start with the um, the collateral challenge here. I, the, I think there's a distinction that's being drawn um, here between the sort of categorical approach analysis that, that the court often part uh, participates in with ACCA, where it says, well, does a prior conviction qualify as a serious drug offense? Does it qualify as a violent felony? Does it have those elements? Does it match up? But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is clearly... Preclude, uh, precluded by Custis. It's a question of, is the prior conviction valid? And Judge Colleton, you mentioned the other um, feature, the other uh, reasoning behind the Custis rule. One of them was ease of administration. We don't want judges in district courts to have to go back and sort through plea colloquies and transcripts from trials and that sort of thing to figure out whether a, um, you know, whether there's a validity or whether the defendant had effective assistance of counsel, which was the issue in Custis, or, or those sorts of things. But the other point of Custis was um, respect for state court judgments. We want to be able to look at the judgment and say, okay, we're going to give this judgment finality. This defendant had opportunities to challenge the issues that he's raising now with his sentence, with his prior convictions in Missouri state courts, either by, on he could on direct appeal in Missouri, you can challenge even when you plead guilty, you can challenge the sufficiency of the information for certain cert, cert, under certain uh, uh, standard of review that we talked about in our brief. And there may even be a way he could have done so in state post-conviction review. And then he obviously would have had the opportunity to raise any preserved um, challenges to the prior convictions uh, in, in a federal court under 2254. But that's, uh, that's not the, the route that he's chosen here. The route he's chosen is to try to challenge these convictions collaterally uh, and should claim that they're invalid um, in a sentencing in a sentencing proceeding 20 years later, and that's just something that Custis prohibits him from doing, uh, and and there's good reasons for that, which uh, which we've discussed. Um, the the it, it, I'll say a few I'll say a few words about the about the actual convictions. The I, I think there's maybe a disagreement we have about exactly. Do you have a question? Yeah. Well, I wondered if you know the answer to the question that we asked Mr. O'Connor. Do we have anything in the record about the state court uh, plea colloquy or judgment or anything else that would illuminate whether the judge required knowledge to uh, enter a judgment of conviction? 
the answer to your question is yes and no, Your Honor. Uh, yes, the judgment is in the record. Uh, I'm looking at the judgment right now. It's like a computer printout. It was sentencing exhibit one. Um, it, it's not said in briefs. You, you all may not have it, and I'm happy to provide it. If, oh, if we have that. Me. We have that, but I didn't think that was the judgment. Is that the actual judgment in the case? I, I read it as saying sentence and judgment. That That's how I read the, judge, the, the document, Your Honor. But if it's not, you and I have the same document. So uh, I'm not aware of another document in the case that would answer your question. Um, do, you, but I, just, do you think that document you're referring to answers the question? I, Your Honor, I, I'll be honest, I don't. I think I'm looking at it. I don't see. Um, I can imagine that the judge might have fixed the issue that is purported to be raised here in a plea colloquy, but I don't think this document tells us whether it did or not. So... Um, yeah, but, but with respect to that, and the reason I, I say in my brief that it's a confusing issue, um, I don't think this court should reach it. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's an issue that even the Missouri state courts have struggled with because it's not quite that the sentence or that the, the statute was just, um, uh, amended. That's not what happened. What happened was, as I understand it, the, the statute of conviction, the drug distribution statute, has never said expressly what the mens rea requirement is. For uh, a period of time, up until 1993, there was a separate statute that provided the mens rea. That statute was repealed. Um, for a period of time, the Missouri, there's a case that we cite in our briefs called Hatton, and in Hatton, the court says, well, we're going to look we say that 195.211, the drug distribution statute, has a mens rea, and we're going to find it in two other statutes. And that's in a uh, Judge Robertson that had written that opinion. Shortly thereafter, an opinion written by another learned jurist, Judge Benton, wrote, well, in a similar statute, we're not going to look to sections in Chapter 562 to fill in the blanks. We're going to find that the statute implies a mens rea. Both of these things took place before the convictions issue here. The uh, the Missouri legislature did not, as I read it, uh, the Missouri le legislature did not add a new chapter 562-021, the one that raises the mens rea to, to knowledge, until after the guilty plea in this case. Um, it was it was finalized on, in July. Um, it supposedly take effect 90 days after, and that 90 days, as I calculated, would have been the day after this, this conviction. I don't, I don't assert that I have 100% of all of that. The point I'm trying to make with it is that it is a very confusing area in law? What was the law under the two opinions that you mentioned by Justice Robertson and Justice Benton? What was the law at the time of these prosecutions? What was the mens rea under those states? It's it's um it's a little bit it, it is at least uh it is that the the problem is that Judge Justice Robertson's opinion says that the mens rea for two doesn't say. <laughs> it's why it's a problem to, to answer your honest question. It says 211 has a mens rea, and it cites two statutes, and the two statutes lay out four different mens rea that might apply. Um, the second, the Judge Benton opinion, uh, it says the, the mens rea for a separate statute is knowingly, but it's, it gets there by looking at that statute's um, the statute dealing with trafficking brings into the state. It says brings into the state implies a mens rea of knowingly and refuses to do what Judge Robertson did by saying that, well, Chapter 562 is in shambles. So I'm not going to go there. Now, I will say that drew a dissent from Judge Limbaugh, 
that says I'm actually going to look in Chapter 562. I, I, that's why I don't want to skirt your honest question. It's a very complicated area. It's exactly the kind of thing that this court shouldn't engage in 20 years later, uh, which is why Custis tells this court and the district court here, hey, don't do this. If the judgment says judgment on it, it's valid. The, the, the defendant has the opportunity to go to state court and fix these problems. Um, here, he might have a little trouble because he's, uh, of course, served those sentences, and maybe he doesn't have all the rights that he previously had for review. But that's not a problem that the federal court can remedy, uh, and I think Custis makes that clear. Um, is there a new... Well, if you don't know what the mens rea was, then assume for a moment that the mens rea was only recklessness. <clears throat> Wouldn't uh, Lyman be able to raise the question whether a drug conviction with only a mens rea of recklessness qualifies under 924E? No, Your Honor. I don't think he can raise that question. And the reason is that 924E, the Supreme Court has told us, is not concerned with comparing a generic offense of some kind with a particular mens rea. Now you're answering the merits, but he could raise the issue. And Shuler has a footnote that says <clears throat> they don't address the question of knowledge. So I don't, whether it's an open question that he can raise. Well, Your Honor, I, I think that the issue would be, I would address it this way. It, it, assume, it, assume whatever mens rea, assume any mens rea that could be possible, right? Assume stri all the way up. None of those is going to be a basis for relief. And more importantly, uh, under, under 924E2, and more importantly, Custis doesn't open that. I mean, it's clear from Mr. O'Connor's argument that what he's saying is my convictions are invalid. Uh, he's not saying that I was convicted of reckless behavior well, and reckless behavior. That's because he's conceding that Shuler resolved what footnote 3 of Shuler says we aren't resolving. <clears throat> and so if he accepts that the convictions are valid and doesn't try to get around Custis, I'm saying what about the argument that a recklessness crime is insufficient under 924E, the issue left open in Shuler? As I as I understand your honor's question, I I guess I can't um, I can't give you an answer further than to say, well, the the uh, if what we're talking about here is does the does that statute, which the statute itself hasn't been amended, involve the conduct that's discussed in Shuler? The answer is yes. The, the statute involves the conduct, distribution, manufacture, or possession with intent to distribute or manufacture. Yeah. Um, I think that's the 11th Circuit's answer in a case called Smith, but I just question whether Shuler really resolves it. I'll be honest, up until the point your honor posed that question to me, I, I, I think that the Shuler does resolve that question, but, um, but I acknowledge that I would... Well, take a look at footnote 3 in Shuler, see if you still feel that way. But thank you for your argument. I think your time has expired. I see that, Your Honor. Thank you very much, and we'd ask the court to affirm. Uh, Mr. O'Connor, we'll hear from you in rebuttal. Thanks very much. Just one thing I want to clarify in terms of the line of cases that the government cited to, Carson, Hatton, etc., they all come to the same conclusion, that it's knowledge. It's not reckless, it's knowledge. Now, how they come to that determination is fascinating, and Judge Benton's opinion is interesting to read. But the truth is, they all see it as knowledge, not reckless. So the way that they got there may be different, but they all agree that that is what the mens rea is. 
Um, I think that's all I have. If the court has any other questions, I'd be happy to answer them. All right, hearing none, we thank you for your argument. The case is submitted and the court will file an opinion in due course.